How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 140. Oh, that was disgusting, Zeke. <laughs> Why? I put my bin out so you could, like, blow your nose, and it's been sitting there for, like, 10 minutes. So really, you're just holding the tissue in your head for 10 minutes. You ever notice that sometimes you blow your nose and, like, you can't find a bin, so you just awkwardly got your snotty. <laughs> that was me. Except I, the bin was, like, the bin an was inch there the away. Whole time. I took the lid off for you. I know. You were a real team player about it. <laughs> no, um, just don't look no, too deep. No, we in are in the middle of spring. And I think allergy season has hit me like a wrecking ball. So, oh, a thousand percent. Um, sounding a little nasally today. Yeah. Not like the uh, the hot hangover voice, which is raspy. Right. This yeah. is the nasally. This is the. I'm pushing my glasses when, closer to my forehead. <laughs> when's the last episode where you actually just had like your normal speaking voice on the show? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. It's it's been a it's been a rough year. Oh. <laughs> um, Fair enough, man. That's tough. How you doing, Jake? I'm okay. I'm. You know what? I was very happy when I the other night when they're like, Jake, where we're gonna. It's a bit of rain. There's a bit of this, a bit of that. We're probably gonna. You don't have to come into work on the Sunday. Uh, so sorry about that. And I'm like, no need to apologize, friend, because now I have a day where I can finally watch some movies. Well, that's great. And it was pretty. It was a pretty good day off. God forbid I take a Sunday off. You know what I mean? Yep. God forbid. Don't know how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> Can't believe it. No, but it's, I've, been, I've been good. I've been good, Zeke. You've been good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Voice aside? No, it's... it's Look, it's it's that time of year in the middle of semester. Um, mm-hmm. Been very busy. Um, did manage to get in our film of the week. Not too much else other than that film, unfortunately. But, oh, that's all right. Um, definitely... Uh, you know, it's I've just been mostly just doing TV shows in my my downtime. Um, yeah, it's fair. I finally downloaded because Letterbox is not great for TV. It's one of the biggest downfalls. Um, I got TV Time, which is it's not as good as Letterbox. You can't like rate stuff or add stuff to watch this or anything yeah. like that. But you can like log TV shows and like individual episodes and seasons. Oh, that's good. So I've been trying to do that just to get me in the mindset because like they just had the Emmys, like in yeah. the last I guess day or two, um, and I have. I'm so out of the loop, you know. I haven't yeah. seen like Succession or The Crown. Ted Lasso picked up some stuff. Oh, good, so, good. Yeah. Got to watch something on Apple. <laughs> yeah. I really want to watch that show. I yeah. see like scenes from it actually legitimately makes me laugh. So. Oh, sweet. I've heard good yeah. things. I've heard really good things. It's just can't be motivated to get Apple TV. It's just... <laughs> I don't. I don't blame you. Yeah. It's not every time I sign an Apple TV, it has to do the authentication code, which is ridiculous, mm. and it doesn't send to my phone. It sends to my mum's phone. Because we got the free year because we bought a, excuse me, an iPhone for Christmas. Yeah. So we had this whole year Apple f- for free, but every time I log in, I have to get her phone to get the verification code to put it in. I'm like, it's a streaming service. That's so it's not, odd. It's not a missile launch. Like, <laughs> let, let me watch my movies. Oh my goodness. Well, speaking of movies, Jake, yeah. have you got a tr- piece of trivia from oh, our film of the week? I do. I do have a piece of trivia. So. Of course, today we're talking about Richard Linklater and his wider career. And um, I didn't catch too many of the films I haven't seen. I, I didn't get around to Days and Confused, which I was very, very unfortunate. Mm. But I feel like well, you're going to help me out with that because you've seen that and everybody wants some. Yeah. So you're going to help me fill the gaps there. Um, but we'll, we'll go all into that soon. One thing I didn't know about him is that he actually worked on a rotoscoped animated film in, I believe, it was 2001. S- Scanner Darkly. Hmm? Is it a Scanner Darkly, the rotoscoping the one? 
I don't know if it, well the film is called Waking Life. Oh yeah, that's what it's called. Right. But uh, I didn't know he did rotoscope animation or anything like that. Especially we were just talking about ants, oh, as you do, you know, before the show. And like, did Woody Allen actually direct ants? Like, well, no, because it's an animated film. He yeah, didn't, he didn't direct it. They probably had animation directors on that, but um, he actually Linklater directed this rotoscoped animated film. And I didn't know this until today. Apparently, Jesse and Celine have a scene in it. They have a cameo in it. It's an animated scene of them in bed having a conversation. And it's the, it's Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi reply, reprising the roles, hmm. which is insane. And this predates any of the before sequels. There you go. So it was quite fascinating. But I will say, based on... And we won't spoil anything from the future films. We're only going to be talking about before Sunrise in this film. But I will yes. say, the timeline doesn't make much sense. So this is a non-canon scene with them in it. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. But it I, it's cool to, to see that this exists. So look it up on YouTube. Waking Life. What about you, Zeke? What trivia do you have for me? Well, speaking of Julie Demf, uh, Delphi and mm. Ethan Hawke, um, i got a couple of things. So the screenplay was written, the original screenplay was written in 11 days, which is a very Ooh. quick turnaround for a 90-minute thing. But on top of that, by extension, most mm. of the script was rewritten by Delphi and Hawke. Um, it's particularly their dialogue. Yeah. Um. Uh. However, they uh uh Delphi um Delphi, is it Delphi? Delphi. I think it's Delphi. Yeah. Uh, Delphi. Beg my pardon. Uh, Don't quote me on that. Later <laughs> expressed uh frustration that they were uncredited for their work. Yeah. See, so, that's fascinating because I remember when I was writing my letterbox reviews for the other films, they're both credited as writers in the sequels, in Sunset and Midnight. Mm. And I made a point of saying they weren't credited as writers in the first one. So that's interesting to hear that. So perhaps that was the amending offences there with the... Possibly, with the, yeah. the, the sequels. But um, like you said, um, we're, you know, we're going to obviously touch on that film later in the show. But really important just precursor is going to be... Um, yeah, we're only going to be talking about that film. We're not going to talk about the trilogy. Yeah. Which... Um, you know, because we might, you know, we'll talk, probably elaborate a little bit more. On the yeah, well, there's a show. few reasons why we'll get um, to them. But, yeah, really interesting. That, that sort of makes a lot of sense when it comes to the authenticity of the characters. Mm, for sure. um, sort of the absolute envelopment. Like, it's one thing to um, write characters that are just ridiculously um, grounded and real feeling and authentic. It's another thing for these two actors uh, uh, to just completely... Envelop their yeah, characters. They are sure. they are their characters. Um, yeah, and you, you you can tell immediately how I guess involved they were. Yeah, but not not just in the film. It but the, the really doesn't feel like acting at times with right. this film, and I think that's important. Obviously, behind the scenes context to why that might be contributing to that in their performances, because it might be very similar, like written reflections of their own identities. Yeah. Um, that that's definitely the vibe I guess. There's a lot of their heart and soul that they've injected into uh, this, into the script. So yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah, that was something that I've actively have talked about in the past is how they became more involved in future films. But evidently, it was just the credit <laughs> they've yeah. been there from the beginning, which makes sense, makes total sense to me. But yeah, Zeke, do you think this is on the 1,100 films you should watch before you die poster? Yes, and it should be. Mm. It's actually not. No. It's not on the poster. 
There's like 13 films from 1995 on the poster and Before That's, Sunrise That is, is not... a crime. Yeah, I agree. That's ridiculous. This is not on the poster. I would assume it's because other Linklater films like Dazed and Confused are on the poster. Probably. I don't think I um, checked. But that's a crime. This is not... This is this film is... If I'm, if I'm writing a, a eulogy of 1,100 <laughs> films, this film is definitely being here. And something tells me when I get to the sequels, they'll probably be there too. Yeah. That's one thing I didn't check is if any of the sequels are on there. Uh, I can't see. I don't know if that wouldn't make any sense to me at all. If like sunset, there you go. This is the <laughs> first time this has happened since Green well, Mile. Yeah, it was since Green Mile exactly. Where it's like a genuine surprise mm. that something is or isn't on the poster. So yeah, interesting. This is this is why we do it. I like it. The surprises, if you will. Well, Jake, maybe you should alleviate us mm. with these films you managed to actually get to watch this know, week, right? <laughs> <laughs> so one that I watched. Um, well, this was all yesterday. This was all the Sunday. There's two films that I've wanted to watch for a while, and I've, I've found very specific reasons to do it. Let's talk about the first one. This film we've both seen. You watched this film all the way back in episode 67 when we talked about Onward, and you, I actually re-listened to that, and you had an excellent sort of analysis of The Florida Project, which I finally Yay. seen myself. Um, so if you want to go back to episode 67, hear Zeke talk about it. It's great. I would love to add on to that, if you will. Because plus it's been a while. That's how long ago it was since you've seen it. Which I could have swore. So that's over a year, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that was like April of 2020. I could have swore you watched it sooner what than that. What has happened to time? I know. It's all, it's <laughs> all meshed into one thing, isn't it? <laughs> but yeah, so Florida Project, for those who don't know, is sort of a slice of, slice of life film that, in terms of the way it's shot, it kind of veers both ways. Like, I want to say that it's sort of shot with a documentary style, very handheld in your face yeah. but then there's plenty of like Wes Anderson type shots where it's showing the the symmetry of the the motel like the pink walls and all the doors next to each other so that's interesting but at its core it's a story about um this daughter and mother who live in this motel when you know the mother's struggling to sort of get her money and it's about the community that's fested there and um the thing that you mentioned that I I I was constantly forgetting during the film but by the end is, is a very clear element of the film is that it's right next to Disney World in Florida. That's actually where the title comes from. The Florida Project is the name of what Disney World like was in, I guess, the pre-production, the building of it. Um, so yeah, it's sort of that juxtaposition between like those class statuses and the stuff that I took away, which I thought was excellent, was the sort of those parental barriers that, in this case, a mother would put in front of their daughter because we followed the story from the perspective of the kids. Absolutely. And um, I love that even though it's like this, it's an open playground for them to just be themselves and have fun, there's so much underneath, so much struggling and pain that the adults are constantly facing. Uh, the reason I finally watched is because we talked about Willem Dafoe last week on The Lighthouse. Now, I got to say, I didn't necessarily think his performance in this was better than his performance in The Lighthouse. A thousand percent, it's excellent. It serves the story. I love that he plays it so straight in the middle as sort of this motel manager that doesn't really have that much of more authority than the people that are sort of, you know, constantly paying him. But I loved his presence in it. Um, I thought he was excellent. But I got to say, the ending, I cannot believe how... Pa- There's one of the most powerful endings of any film mm. I've ever seen. And I'm not going to spoil it. Like, go watch The Florida Project. It's excellent. But you didn't prepare me for that. No. <laughs> I think anyone really is. I think it's just... It's... Um, 
Yeah, mm. it's a tough. It's a real. It's a full on ending. Yeah. Um, it is one of those films. I can't believe it's been that long. It came like April last year. Wow, yeah, that's yeah, crazy. Honestly. Um, but I, I think his performance in it does resonate with me. I think it obviously. It's tricky because it's like you know you take his lighthouse where he's he, he, you know it's him Patterson the whole time so yeah um he has obviously a lot more to do in that film yeah well there's a lot more pro- challenge like the words he's saying how he's saying it, yeah the, the physical acts aspect of that performance versus here it's so sort of straight down the middle and he has to play it very uh, subtly yeah I think it's it's interesting because I think it's for, it's just the resonance that mm. and then it comes back to what is you know when you talk at a talk about an actor's performance why um you love that performance more or you think that is his better performance because the way the way he's acting is better and it's like I guess he's just because he's not having to do so much like yeah he's not yeah. having to learn to speak a certain way or act a certain way or wear prosthetics or or all this he's very much just himself playing this this motel manager but it's the authentic the balance of like you like you were trying to like yeah the balance between authoritarian and and um sort of empathetic yeah uh, and really kind of being the only lifeline to this you know this little girl and her her kind of disturbed mother um, yeah who like who is spiraling constantly constantly spiraling constantly Uh, wrestling at me as the audience yeah of like do i like her like no she's kind of a shit. <laughs> um, and it's it's fascinating with the daughter character because of sort of the the parallels with Disney World and and then obviously it's it's all about that subjective discourse versus objective discourse. Mm. You know the fact that this main character and, and they do a little bit of it. Uh, you know films like Minari also touch on this. This yeah, yeah. Um, although Minari allows us to explore outside of the little you know the little boy's perspective where we we see you know um i'm i'm blanking on their names but you know steven yoon's character and, right. his, and his wife that their arguments we actually break away from that po that pure pov yeah to see the argument happening whereas you know the only time we ever see sort of the you know we break that pov of of the little girl i can't remember her name in the Frog project let me see if i can go it's like mooney uh, or something like that yeah it's um is through defoe's character where right. we see the, sort of the, this disturbing um and i just find it really interesting with the trying to you know show this this domestic family drama of lower socioeconomic houses and putting it right next to disneyland where um you know so all the things that you know is it mooney is that it's a, a yeah mooney m-o-o-n-e-e so mooney. Right. brooklyn it's, prince brooklyn prince great performance oh my god her performance is impeccable the kids in this film are insane yeah, they're the insane kid. and i think a film like this is going to make or break off those those kid performances and the fact that that good are just it's very impressive yeah it's, it's a tough ending Oh, God. Because I think part of it, and again, I'm not going to spoil it, but part of it, it kind of comes out of nowhere in a lot of ways where the the underlining relationship is there. Because, again, I'm focused on, like, the interesting parallels of the daughter-mother relationship. And, again, with those barriers of, you know, when I'm six years old, I have no concept of money, the daily struggle of money, because my parents shielded that reality from me and I'm living in a fantasy. And, like, we see that. We see with, like, the low angles or the shot when, you know, she's going to grab the bread. We, We stay with her. So everyone else is like cut off, like their their legs are essentially cut mm. off from the frame, and we're not focusing on the adults and the struggle. Like, oh, please move your van. It's like we're focusing on the the childlike 
naivete. Yeah. And I love that represent- representation there, or even when the mum's like stomping on the floor to you know piss off her neighbour that's below her, and all she's doing is just waking her child up. And I love that that, that crisscross is just slowly getting more and more, um, I guess, hinged or the, the barrier is being broken. Yeah. But the thing is, like, with the ending, the reason that it breaks you, like, I had tears streaming down, like, I, out of nowhere, man. It's just like it hits you like a brick when you realize what the film's really about. Like, what yeah. the relationship you're meant to be focusing on is about. Yeah. Now, it's funny because going way back, I remembered this. I remember you telling me about the ending, how it sort of shot very differently. And mm. again, I won't spoil it, but even back on that episode 67, you talked about the last sequence. It looks like there's like a weird dip in, it's almost like they completely swapped cameras. And yeah. There's like a weird effect going on. So I looked this up and I sort of had a theory and it was pretty spot on. Your theory was that there was a, a certain limitation uh, in terms of where they were allowed to shoot. And that was part of the reason that, most certainly was part of the reason. Oh, go me. That they, <laughs> that they ended up shooting it on an iPhone, that last sequence. But here's the thing. I'll say, I think it's actually totally motivated that, that it just looks different because the rest of the film shot on 35 millimeter, which I thought it was 16 just because of the way the color looked. I was like, no, 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 that's full 35 millimeter. You can see all the scratches on it. I love they mm. keep that stuff in there. But for me, it's motivated because you could argue that last sequence is not real, that it's almost imaginary. Yeah, and I think that's kind of cool. It is really. I I do love the 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 full use of perspective, mm. and in discussing these these relations, um, it is definitely a film I would love to revisit because yeah, you could definitely it just, do it on the podcast. It definitely, yeah. it definitely should. I mean, I mean, it was one of the outstanding films of twenty nineteen. I want to say twenty twenty seventeen. Wow, going back, yeah, going back a little bit. Yeah. It's um yeah, it definitely resonated with me. I think there's a lot of intelligence in that script. Um, well, even and, like and, even the and stuff complexity. Th- yeah. In what you know on the surface is a relatively simplified family drama, mm. but it's the way that they tell that story. Yeah. You know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Streamline, sort of covering the you know similar sort of domestic problems, but yeah. just from a different perspective. But how you know, pun intended, how streamlined that narrative was, how overly <laughs> simple it was. Every character was more archetypal and, and right. didn't really necessarily have, you know, there were definitely scenes of co- complexity and intelligence, which we discussed about on that episode. Absolutely, but yeah. for the most part, every character was relatively um, simple to understand. Whereas in this film, uh, each character is a little bit more complex and has more subtler nuances to them. Yeah. Um, well, it 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 walks that tightrope of like how likable are these characters? Because it's like yeah. th- there's an aspect of this film where you're meant to see sort of how the other side lives, and it's like, well, I'm in I'm in an economically more sound position than this mother and daughter are, but that doesn't stop me from both sympathizing with her, but also thinking she's a, in a lot of ways she's a really bad mother, but in a lot of ways she's she's a great mother. You know, and it, I love that it sort of plays with that in a way For that sure. doesn't really put a full stop on it. And yeah, it's hard to talk anymore without spoiling the crap out of it. But it's it's I it's in my top three Defoe performance. Yeah, though, yeah between that sure. and um, at Eternity's Gate. Yeah, like well, like I said, for me, he he perfectly serves the larger story, yeah. and the story itself is just is brilliant. Sean, Sean Baker is you, you can wow, tell, what a you, filmmaker. Yeah, you can tell he's he. I love his character. He's just like 
so like he's just slightly above everyone else socioeconomically <laughs> in the film well but he not has like, people to answer to as well but he does you know what i mean and yeah. it's like he tr- like the moments where he has his moments of empathy and kindness but then we'll still call out bad behavior yeah 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 <laughs> like when mooney's acting out and he's just like not having a bar of it like yeah but he always feels slightly overwhelmed by everything that's happening yeah exactly well he has he has that authoritarian side where he's frustrated with them you know they've they've shut the power off to the whole ho- uh, the motel and everyone's pissed off and then at the same time they're playing hide and seek under his desk and he he just lets it happen he's like all right go ahead like the, it, it's such a tight rope yeah. uh not even performance but just like he's i don't know he's a great character he's a great character great character very underspoken as well um yeah excellent film and even to the what you were saying about the relatability it's like yeah the ending it's like i can't believe i'm relating to a six-year-old girl in this way but like i really am but then even the beginning with them spitting on cars like I remember doing that as a kid, not not spitting on cars, but throwing lemons at like houses. <laughs> like it's 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 a very relatable film. That is the best way to put it. But yeah, the... I've never been to Disneyland, Florida. I've been to Anaheim twice. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I've never left Australia. <laughs> <laughs> what else have you caught? Uh, I've been to Movie World. Um, so I caught the other one was Man on the Moon, which is for those who've seen the Jim and Andy Docker with Jim Carrey. That's the film that it's based around. It's his portrayal as Andy Kaufman, the uh, I guess controversial comedian. I guess is a good way to to put it. Yeah, controversials. Obviously, the problem with the word controversial nowadays is everyone puts a, a negative um, connotation that's it, on it, isn't it? Yeah. Where it's like controversial back in the day just used to be the guy who gets you talking. Um, yeah, about yeah. stuff. Um, so controversial is technically the right word to describe it. But Kaufman was never like frowned upon. I think it's some of the things he said were like controversial but yeah. more like conversations and really just to raise his profile well it's interesting because like i think this film so it's directed by milo's My- uh foreman who did amadeus and um, probably more famously cuckoo's nest but i compared it to amadeus a lot because it is about like the artist who's not quite understood by everyone and what it really goes into in this film um i mean there's a lot about sort of the the multiple personalities that he has mm. and, and it, it's such a layered film especially when you consider the Jim and Andy doco on top of it and that extra context of Jim Carrey and how he got into those roles uh, as well as Tony Clifton and whatnot like that that was such an interesting thing that they explored uh but as well as like the audience just not getting his kind of humor but also who is his humor for Mm. because there's a great scene where um god why am I forgetting his name who plays the essentially his agent um is it uh Danny DeVito Danny DeVito thank you um there's a scene where he's like, yeah, he's abusing him. Like, you know, you can't be a comedian with, you're the only one who understands the joke. Like that can't be the case. And then Andy Cobb like, well, why not? <laughs> it's, it, it's an interesting like exploration. They go into there. I don't think, I think Amadeus for me gets extra points because the biopic aspect of it, where it's like, here's Mozart's life. It's all wrapped around this uh, revenge story or like a, not a revenge story, but a, kind of a revenge story but it's a rivalry in a sense and it's sort of wrapped around that and the the consequences of certain people who die in the mozart story are the consequence of other characters and their actions while here it sort of falls into that biopic trap where we've talked about more recently like the bohemian rhapsody trap of altering events so they sort of play in a certain order and uh saying that things happened after a cancer diagnosis just to make it more sort of empathetic and have it make it more meaning or not like yeah. it falls into that trap of doing things like that um i still think it's a great film 
but I, I noticed it kind of lost points for me there because the up until that point, the film was so good at having this meta commentary of Andy Kaufman sort of playing with the audience and manipulating the audience. And the film sometimes plays it as we, the audience don't know what's happening. So there's certain scenes when I'm watching where he's like, Oh, he's really annoying this character. And then you learn that character is actually in on the joke, like mm. three or four scenes later. So it plays with the audience as well as like the people within the world based on a real story, a story of course. But then because it's doing that, you can't really attach yourself to Andy Kaufman as a character because there's a lot of manipulation and it feels like a film that's taking a back step to look at his comedic process. So when in the last act he gets cancer and it's all sad and gloomy, it's like, well, I can't relate to him in the same way because it, I haven't, it doesn't feel earned yet. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It should have focused more on like the, is it true? Is it not true aspect? There's scenes of that of people questioning like, Oh, is this another joke or does he actually have cancer? Like it's in there, but I, I think it could have played those elements a little bit more. Um, but overall, I thought it was great. Um, a foreman's direction is excellent. The way he transitions from scenes when Tony Clifton's like yelling on top of the car, and then they they use like the little um, the sound deck thing to like turn down his volume, and that transitions into the next scene. Like he's just such a classic director. Little mm-hmm. tricks like that he would do with the edit and whatnot. Um, yeah, I thought it was quite a great film. But like I said, a few missed opportunities here and there. And um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. You learn a lot about Andy Kaufman as a <laughs> as a person I guess but yeah Man of the Moon and it's it's on YouTube someone just uploaded it so you can watch it for free there you go there you go might have to sneak that on YouTube yeah so how's your viewing been Zeke it's been a pretty quiet week for me other than the film yeah. of the week uh, just been continuing my run on Archer um, in just season 4 now and they've just dropped that new season last Friday so oh there you go hope you can get around to that eventually um, so wait you're up to season 4 yeah that's a lot of seasons left to yeah look i might skip up on. like i said I, there was like i think i said the it, dream seasons might skip the dream seasons okay so fair um which skips about four seasons so <laughs> um, so ridiculous it was pretty crazy um so yeah that's pretty much all i've really been watching in the last week um haven't had too much time with uh with university and all that jazz um i've i've gotten like halfway through a couple of films yeah um but never haven't completed any completed anything yet. Um, that's always the worst feeling, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one benefit with watching films at the cinema is like you can't really stop halfway through. You just yeah, kinda, yeah. You, know, you just watch it, but it's like um, a net. You can't you can't stop it. <laughs> it just it keeps going. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, just just the film of the week. Um, yeah, because you know it's just uh, you know how at university. Mm. Um, Jake, you remember the waves of assignments <laughs> that would come in, and I've just passed yep. the wave, so oh, I've got good. a little reprieve. That's good. So hopefully, a lot more movies in the next week. So I'm like where you are a week ago, right? Yeah, right now. Well, I hope I get a little little chill time because we, we're both getting our uh, vaccine shots this week. So I've sort of tried to pave stuff out of the way, just in case I have some reaction to it. You know, I, I don't want to have to work too hard for sure this week, but you know, we'll see. So. Because I wanted to get more films in myself. I wanted to watch, obviously, Days and Confused as well. There's some new stuff. I still haven't seen uh, Shang-Chi yet. No. Not, that not that I'm, like, desperately interested to watch it, but I'm surprised I haven't just done it yet. Done you know it what I mean? yet, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally get that. Oh, yeah. God. It's like I've been wanting to watch probably that What If series that, you know, has been going yeah. on Disney+. Plus and I still haven't I got watched halfway through. Ones. I'm halfway through season three of My Name is Earl, and it's just like... Yeah. 
I just kind of ran out of steam on watching that show too. It's ah, like, that sucks. Oh, it's. I, I honestly, I spent a lot of the last week on on YouTube watching like AFL video essays, which oh, I know it's like that's you know, fascinating. Actually, I know there are a couple of really cool YouTubers out there that like discuss like the, the just standard video essay format. Like I, I like watching them for the film to the week. Yeah, uh, occasionally, I avoided doing it this week because for fear that a lot of them talk oh, they're about the a trilogy. thousand percent going to talk about the other films too. Um, so. <laughs> Um, yeah, I've been honestly watching a lot of those. Um, I really like the idea of this video essays. I would love to get, um, if I got some spare time, go into doing a couple of my own. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much all there is to it in the last uh, last week for me. Oh, that's fair enough. Well, I'm excited because the AFL, obviously, the grand final is happening here this weekend. So yeah. First I don't time blame in you. history. Don't blame you. Yeah, very excited. Been very loving exciting. my footy. Well, I don't have any career updates or anything like that. I do have an article about Christopher Nolan, if you if you if you want to indulge me for a bit, sure. So they've finally announced. We talked about this because we knew he was going to leave Warner Brothers, um, because of all the stuff they were doing with the day and day streaming releases mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I I don't remember if I said this publicly. I don't know if I said it to you privately or not. I always said Sony should get on him because mm-hmm. Sony don't really have a very clear film streaming service, but they also have the money to back him up because they backed up Tarantino recently. Anyway. Sony almost got him. Okay. They were just off. It went to Universal, which I think is a very interesting um, very interesting choice, especially because they're actually historically bad with putting out film releases. Like, they put out, like, the digital releases. They send in the cinemas. Mm. But I think they're actually bad with sending out, like, actual film prints to cinemas. So, it's interesting. But I wanted to read some of the, um, basically, the deals that they made. So, for those who don't know, the new Chris Nolan film that he's working on after Tenet, of course is actually a historical uh, World War film about J. Robert Oppenheimer, who did, who was the father of the atomic bomb. So it's going to be about him, and I think Killian Murphy's going to play him. Sick. So that's pretty cool. Is this his first like lead lead role in a Chris Nolan film? In a Chris Nolan film, I yes. I think it is. Yeah. Where he's like the actual main character. Yeah. That's sick. I didn't even think about he's that. He's been in about 46 of them. But, <laughs> But not um, quite the lead, yeah, exactly. So some of the deals they made. He's like uh, Ethan Hawke to Linklater. Link yeah, I like that. I like yeah. that. Except except Ethan Hawke, he was a lead much earlier in yeah, the career. He, he still cracked true. that nut, which I'm proud of him for. But yeah, so the first Universal film from Christopher Nolan, um, who's obviously worked on Warner Brothers previously. I just wanted to mention some of the, the things he's done in the deal with Universal. So this film's actually going to cost about $100 million, which is actually... Well, on the smaller end of his previous films. That's about maybe half, if not less than half, the budget of some of his other... Like, I reckon there's probably a, a... Especially after Tenant's very mixed reaction, there might be a mm. um, hesitancy from Universal. Does he still have it in him, or is he finally out of ideas? I think possibly, but the vibe I'm getting from what I'm reading is that Universal made no, like, objections of any kind. This was actually Nolan deciding himself... To make a slightly smaller budget instead of 250 million, it's just 100 million, which he himself calls smaller scale. I guess it's technically smaller. <laughs> I would call it small scale. Imagine you're at you're at that stage of your career where you're like, I'm going for a smaller production, 100 million. <laughs> if only a. Eh? Um, so yeah, Nolan also requested an equal marketing budget, which is about that's about right. Usually you have the same amount of money for marketing as mm-hmm. the actual film production, as well as a total creative control, 20 percent of the first dollar gross, which to be fair, he had that for Tenet as well, I'm pretty sure. So that's not new. However, he wants a blackout period from each 
uh, from which the studio within the company would not release another film three weeks before or after his film. So basically, Universal can't release any films within six weeks of this film coming out, which is kind of bonkers. That's a power play. That is a power play. He also wants, I'm not joking, a 100-day theatrical window, which is, especially today, where it's more like 45 days, he wants 100 days. That's bonkers. He wants his payday. <laughs> he wants that payday for sure. Well, the, the classic thing when things would go to DVD is about a 90-day release window. Because yeah, that's three months. Yeah. That's a quarter of the year. I remember when I was doing X-Rental and talking to some of the video owners, they actually were telling me, like, it's, it was very much this unspoken rule. Well, I don't even know if it was a legitimate rule, but it was like, it was the agreement they came on. 90 days between theatrical release and DVD. But that's not a 90-day theatrical window necessarily. Because most theaters, they wouldn't play the film for 90 days. Yeah. You know? I remember when Spider-Man 3 came out. It came out like early or mid-May. And I wanted to watch it for my birthday, which was 10th of June. Yeah. So I did. I was even though I was very excited to watch Spider-Man 3 for my 10th birthday, I waited like over a month to watch it. And there was a fear of like, is it even going to still be playing in cinemas? Yeah. And it was a little over a month after it came out, empty theater. It was just me and my friends, which was awesome, but indicative of even nearly 15 years ago, a month in the cinema was a bit, you know. And now we're in this world with streaming and yeah, stuff. So. Exactly. Very so, bold. 100 day. And the other thing, or was that it? Hollywood Reporter says three main competitors. For, oh, so they're talking about how Apple and Sony tried to buy them. Apple could not do the theatrical window request. So I'm guessing Apple had issues with putting the film in theaters long before the streaming service. Which is funny because they did it for On the Rocks. That got mm. a theatrical window before Apple. Well, I guess it was TV not 100 plus. days though. That's true. That was definitely not 100 days. Um, and apparently Sony were just about ready to actually nab them. I think it would have been better. I think Sony would have been a better pick. But apparently Universal were the ones just to say yes to all of his demands. First to the punch. You know what I mean? So that's fair enough. Um, yeah, but like I said, Oppenheimer, World War Two. I think it's a good idea. I think he can nail that film. I just don't know how tense it's going to be. Are you going to watch it after? Yeah, I also like... I, yeah, in, his films are interesting because, you know, you know, he said up until Tenet... He didn't miss at all. Right. Um, and even Tenet is a divisive miss, if that. Um, yeah. It's not... still, like, decently reviewed. It's got a decent letterbox score. Like, people don't hate it. Like, some people, like, people like us were very disappointed by it. Yeah. But it's not, like, it's not a horrible, horrible film. It's just a big misstep. But I've never watched a, a Nolan film and gone, even in the cinema, and gone, oh, boy, I can't wait to rewatch that. Like, okay. like go back on return. Like... Maybe the Batman films would be the only ones I'd probably would have done a rewatch with. But even right. like, if if I was, I didn't see Inception in the cinema, but I can't imagine myself seeing Inception multiple times in, in, in its cinematic run. Interesting. I would have okay. seen it once and been like, yeah, that was really cool and talk about it. But I yeah. doubt I would have gone back for seconds and thirds. Like, I think any of his films, I would go back for repeat consumption in short succession. Right. Okay. That's fair enough. So, but, I think but, I saw Interstellar twice, though, now that I think about it. Maybe. I definitely... You know it. what? I've only seen... Uh, only. I've seen Dark Knight Rises and Interstellar in the cinema. Oh, and Tenet. Those are the only three films I've seen. This. I, and I didn't Dunkirk. Even, I, I didn't see Dunkirk in the cinema. Oh, wow. I missed it. <laughs> I watched it on Blu-ray, like, a year later. Yeah. I think maybe... Like, maybe... Inter- but, like, nah. 
No, I don't think I've any of, any of them I've seen multiple times. Okay. Da, probably Dark Knight would have probably been the only like if I was oh, younger, that's, that's probably would have seen that more than once. That's just, that film's just awesome. I know they've screened it since, but um, I I I probably missed it, but I would love to see the Dark Knight in a cinema. Oh, yeah. I think that'd cool. be a good one. But yeah, no, I just wanted to mention that. I thought it was interesting. That came out in the last week. Um, I'm not going to talk about the Emmys because I didn't pay any attention to them. Mm. Well, so, that was enough. our first director from a director's corner. <laughs> We're moving into our latest director's corner. Jake. That was a solid segue. Who is the director and what are we watching? This week, Zeke, we're talking about our boy Richard Linklater. I love that, Linklater. It's spelt exactly as it said. Yep. I love that. And of course, we're talking about Before Sunrise. Ring, ring. Pick up the phone. Uh, oh, hello. I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. He has beautiful blue eyes, nice pink lips, frizzy hair. <laughs> I love it. I like to feel his eyes on me when I look away. You couldn't possibly know why a night like this is so important to my life right now. But it is, since we're never going to see each other again. I don't think we should sleep together. Let's see each other again. I don't want you to break our vow. Just so you can get laid. <laughs> Men are lucky we don't bite off their head after mating. Certain insects do that, you know, like spiders and stuff. Mm-hmm. We at least let you live. On his way to Vienna, American Jesse meets Celine, a student returning to Paris. After a long conversation's forged a surprising connection between them, Jesse convinces Celine to get off the train with him in Vienna. Since his flight to the US departs the next morning and he has no money for lodging, they wander the city together, taking in the experiences of Vienna and each other. There you go. That was a long read. That was. That's the letterbox log, no, line, log line. But yeah, that was a bloody short synopsis, basically. Well, that's the first act of the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole thing. Um, <laughs> so obviously, um, we talked about at the start of the show, and we did a hint to it a little bit last week. We're only going to be talking about this film in relativeness. Uh, we're not going to talk about this. Obviously, this is Hallmarks is one of the best trilogies of all time. Absolutely. Um, you have seen all three films. I've I have elected to only watch the films as we put them under the microscope, basically. Absolutely. So, yeah, without going too much into it, we definitely plan on doing all three of these films in their own episodes, so you can have a guess at uh, in, in what quantity we're going to do them in, you know, because we'll say now we're not going to do Sunset next week. No. We're not, but we are going to do it soon. So, yeah, you can do the math in your own head. But, yeah, so you've only seen this one. I've seen the whole trilogy. I watched it back on our Sing Street episode, 122, so... uh Not too long ago. Not too long. No, it was very recent, actually. We were talking about episode 67 earlier in the show. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Because I found that one first. I was like, well, well, here's the thing. I remember talking about the Before Trilogy on our uh, countdown for the decades. Because I Mm. remember making that joke of like, well, the trilogy ends on that decade that we talk about. So that's the Sing Street episode. But then your one, I was was sort of scrolling through. I was like, bloody hell. I thought it was this year. All the way to April 2020. Insane. But... Yeah, our friend of the show, uh, Stephen, actually lent me the trilogy. I've since bought it, the um, the Criterion trilogy. And I watched them all pretty much back-to-back-to-back to back to back over basically two days. Um, but it's interesting because 
I would still say I've given them all the same letterbox score. And I think one of the reasons why I did that is because Sunrise, Sunset, and Midnight, without spoiling it, and I can't because I can't spoil it for Zeke. I'm not going to spoil it for the audience who've only seen this one. Yes. But it is inconceivable to me. Inconceivable! A little throwback. <laughs> to Princess Aether. Bride. I know, wow. right? It's inconceivable to me that they just made this film. And they're like, all right, we made this cool film. And then decided, like, several years later, oh, let's make another one. Mm. And then several years later, let's make another one. And it's funny because, really, a fourth entry in the before, uh, I guess, series, I can't call it a trilogy if they did a fourth one, that would be due next year in 2022. Now, they've actually since gone on to say that they're pretty much not planning to do it. And in fact, I think it's Julie Delphi out of the three sort of head runners who's actually like, let's not do it. Which I really appreciate. Because again, I I cannot believe that this trilogy was not planned as a trilogy ahead of time. Because it's the circular storytelling is so like mind-bogglingly good. But that being said, before Sunrise, as just a singular film is so authentic it's so beautiful and it's i haven't seen every richard linklater film but it's my favorite of his films including the rest of this trilogy it's excellent it's excellent film so um (laughs) here we go yeah six thoughts um so this film i have to say this right now looking at all of the people i follow on letterboxd which uh you know i don't have like a lot of people I follow on there, but like you have a few, you have a few friends. I did good, yeah, some good friends. Yeah. Um, past, present, future, all of them, the works. Um, <laughs> future, you have your future friends on maybe. there. Maybe. Wow, um, that's impressive. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've seen this many five stars mm. or anything above. Like, there's not a single one below four. Right. Um, you actually have the lowest. Um, which is yeah, fascinating. I gave it a four. Um. I gave them all a four. So I don't think I've ever seen that like that positive general consensus. And I adore Richard Linklater. I've seen um, probably all of his most popular films, right. um, bar obviously the two before films I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, with it and School of Rock, didn't get to it this week. <sighs> so sad. it got taken off Netflix. I was gonna watch Did it. Did it actually? Yeah, it was on. Oh, on that's it. sad. I was like, I was like, this is it. I'm gonna watch it. Typed it in was ready to watch it wasn't on there and then i went wow. did it move to stan did it move to no it's just been taken off all of them i have it on dvd if you really need it yeah well that was, that was uh, yeah and then it's it, a lot of his other <laughs> a lot of his other smaller films um are actually really tough to come across a lot of them are either they're just on prime for renting and i'm like i'm paying three bucks to watch like a like a film there or yeah and days and confused i would i would have had to bit the bullet and spend a few bucks on it um, mm. Which uh, I was fine. It was just I ran out of time to do so. Yes, those yeah, the films that the other films like things like uh, like the Newton Boys and stuff like that. Yeah, these they're very media lukewarm ratings, right. and, and stuff. And five bucks for renting them just doesn't seem worth it. Um, you know, even like his latest release, Where Did You Go, Bernadette? Which yeah, yeah I never caught 20. that either. We never. T- I remember just talking about it on the show, but right. never ended up watching it. Um, See, that feels like a weird Linklater film, and I think it's funny because we put him in this. I'll say pedestal, but I'm I'm more thinking of just like the style of the director that he is, especially when you look at the before trilogy, Boyhood, which really goes hand in hand stylistically with these films, 
And the other one I've seen is Last Flag Flying, mm. which is similar in a lot of ways. It really hones in on the conversation, you know, the dialogue. And not necessarily what the dialogue is about, but just, like, that human condition through connection. And that usually comes through dialogue and mm. conversation. And uh, I think he nails that in a lot of his films. 100% agree. I think when you're talking about this director and, and what defines him, it's these conversation-based. So this before trilogy and his other trilogy, which is that sort of coming-of-age masculinity trilogy, which is an unofficial trilogy. It's not right. given a... But the the Days to Confused, Everybody Wants Some, and Boyhood have all been interlinked with each other. Okay. Um, because of their discussion, particularly of, of developmental masculinity yep. and in that search of identity, which is something that, you know, doesn't really get discussed as much as, as people think. Not to that level of sort of relatability and authenticity for young men. And we'll probably touch on why we, you know, one of our things we love about the film of the week yep. with, with an authenticity that is just out of luck um, more than anything, but allows us to really kind of immerse ourselves, particularly in the character of Jesse a little bit more. Mm. Um, but I mean, it's, it's like one of those things that I've, I figured this trilogy is going to be the trilogy that I talk about for like the, the one I always put on a, I'm going to be the one putting this on the pedestal. This is going to be my favorite trilogy ever. Right. I was going to love this film and, and I just every expectation was met with this film. Okay, this film. You started to worry me for a second. <laughs> this, I think this. I mean, I'm probably with you. I think this is my favorite Linklater film. Yeah. Um. It just uh, between the look, I love things like Everybody Wants Some, but I love that for the, the kind of quirky humor side too, and the dazed and confused elements and. Uh, I could go into the discussion of how those films foster, you know, young, like they, like I said, they talk about young men in search for identity. And, and I think boyhood is probably the most melodramatic of those, that trilogy respectively. Mm. Um, albeit it's the one that has some of the most unique elements. The fact it was shot over 12 years. It had that, that, like that, like very meticulous thought out story. Um, and you know it has it definitely has a lot going for it but even in that trilogy i wouldn't say boyhood was the best it was probably my least favorite in that interesting with probably dazed and confused and and everybody wants some on par with each other um but this film is just this is peak Mm. i i said to you um i would love to watch this film and blue jay in close proximity and then you suggested that i potentially should wait for the second film to watch yeah, the- it's probably closer akin to Sunset, and I won't I won't say why because part of the thing that made this trilogy special to me was again watching it back to back to back, and like literally covering my eyes so I wouldn't see the menu like screenshots, mm. you know, just like going in with complete secrecy of I have no idea where this relationship is from one film to the next. Yeah, and I love the the uh, ambu- ambiguity of that. <laughs> I got it right. I yeah. always stuff that word up. Ambiguity. Don't I? Ambiguity. There we go. But um, I, I think that's what made it special for me is is that relationship and not knowing where it's going to go from one step to the next. And I think in terms of that time exploration, you know, Boyhood, yeah, shot over 12 years and it's it's fascinating for that reason. And this, this trilogy of films does a very similar thing in that it plays with time, but it doesn't really show it off through the tools of filmmaking. Like in Boyhood, for example... We never really have like a like a, a weird crossfade like effect no. when we jump a year in time. It just happens. It's a cut. Yeah. You know, it's a cut that's no different from any other cut in that film. 
So I like that it's a very subtle play and a manipulation of time, but it's purely it's purely not just visual, but like the appearance of the characters. Mm. You just see them get a little older with each each passing minute. I think, um, yeah, and I, I think for that that film, I mean, that Boyhood is is fascinating. And one thing we have to talk about straight away is 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 the insane diversity that this man has mm. um, in his film repertoire. I mean, I'm looking at, at your letterbox right now and seeing the ones that you've watched. And, and, you know, we've talked about these two trilogies, which really I think are his, his two pillars of what, um, you know, his two real artistic pillars of uh, legacy that yeah. will, you know, when he passes or when he's finished making films, we'll look back on, on those films being the best reflection of his, you know, his best work. And, yeah. and why were they? Because they were real. They were grounded. They were, um, you know, things like, I like A Scanner Darkly. I think it's in, a really impressive uh, feat. It's all cel-shaded animation. It's got mm. a really interesting cast. Um, it, it, it's kind of, obs- you know, it's, it's so away from, uh, the type of film, things like Bernie, which have that weird mockumentary style of storytelling. It's not right. linear by any stretch. Um, and it plays with stuff. That's really interesting. And then, but the things that I think stand out the best for him is his conversations. Yeah. And, you know, things like Last Flag Flying adhere to that a little bit more. They focus just on the relationship between these three men. Yeah. And it's just fo- a series of conversations. And I remember being a little jarred by that. I don't think I recognized that it was Linklater directing it when I, I just sort of watched it randomly mm. um but it was it was so engrossing that i was like i can't help but love this film even though it's not it doesn't feel like a traditional film in a lot of ways because it's just a conversation yeah. conversation conversation they're much the films like the before trilogy i think yeah I, and and even the yeah and then that sort of that younger uh, young male male um trilogy um i know it's got an unofficial name i can't remember it now coming of it's coming of age trilogy basically. yeah of course um the conversation pieces, set pieces that he creates, are what kind of define him as a director. That he puts, it's about basically putting characters in an environment and making them one with that environment. Yeah. Um, the, and we're basically just a fly on the wall for observing, and I think it peaks with the before films. Um, I definitely at least this first one. It, the fact that. Jesse and and Celine are really just you know two characters that we you know on a collection of this train uh, you know um, and we go on this complete adventure with them and they meet people and and we you know I found there was another little cool piece of trivia the fact that no one else in this film has a name right yeah except them um, really shows that we're you know they really are the you know, they are the main characters in this story. Yeah. Like, this isn't everyone's story, but this is the story we're, we're cho- choosing well, to follow. Well, it's fascinating because that that was something, as much as I love the conversations that are being having, it's always, the dialogue, specifically what they're talking about, is almost the least important part because there's so much environmental storytelling with, like you said, like there's sort of the world around them that's happening, but we're focused on these two, the two characters with the name. When they're in the back of a tram or we're following them on the train, you know, the outside view is just like a passing world. We're passing mm. through trees and houses and all of that. All the tram, there's all there's all this life happening outside this little vehicle that they're in, but that's where we're focused. And I mm. love that it's this very tight framing where th- them as actors in and blocking the scene is like they have so little room to physically move their body. You know, when they're dancing in the corner of the frame or when they're listening to the music in in the uh, the music store, 
Um, the one I love, especially with they're playing the um, the uh, what's it called? Pinball. Pinball. I forgot. I forgot the name of pinball. They're for just a alternating. Second. They're just alternating. It's but just back and forth. And they're alternating. Rotation. And it comes back to little little subtle nuances. And this yep. is a mixture. I have to, you know, in this film particularly, but it, it actually exists in a lot of um, Linklater's films. Choreography is defined by the world, and mm. and blocking is defined by the world. They switch, but sometimes they're switching. They're not switching on script beats. No, no. Sometimes they're switch. They're only switching because every time they lose the game, they're restarting yeah. the game. Switch. Um, and they're Change switching. places. And it's fascinating because there were a couple of times in that exchange, which it sums it up perfectly, where one of them. Um, I remember there's once like Celine fails within like 20 like two seconds of it yeah yeah, and yeah. I, they do like an, a switch and it's like very clearly like that scene that dialogue was supposed to go a little bit longer but because the ball fell out yeah, and the, they had to switch kind of mid, and you know well it's an authenticity and like their little laugh is like yeah. oh there's a beat in the scene we didn't expect to happen but, but to roll with it and it's like those things those imperfections mm. are what make this film perfect yeah because it's natural it purely feel. Because they're the things, those, uh, you know, the, the fact that, you know, they, Jesse makes this spontaneous romantic gesture and then immediately they're both like a little awkward about it. And you feel that awkwardness because that's a hundred percent what would happen. It was the graduate yeah. moment. It was the, but it, this was, you know, obviously that was played a little bit differently, but yeah. it's like their very awkward interaction with the two guys doing the play. Like it, it's a very awkward exchange between the four of them, but yep. it feels like, you know, what would happen if two people went up to, to random people were like, we don't know where, why we are and yeah, yeah, yeah. what's going on and what we're And even really just doing. like the, the, the random asides where he's like, oh, well, we're married, she's pregnant, but then they know he's lying. And and it's all like fun because they're all laughing, having a fun time. He's like, oh, I played the cow, but he's sort of hiding that fact that he's playing the cow. Yeah. So it's like those little interactions there. Yeah. It's like, it's so authentic. Yeah. And, and it, it's, it's. The dialogue, which this predates the mumblecore movement, but I imagine it's one of the main influences of it. 100%. Because it's dialogue that's... It, it pretty much only exists in the way that it does to convince the audience that this is like an authentic, realistic interaction. When you watch something like Pulp Fiction, you're not really meant to think that these are real interactions with real people. It's meant yeah. to be exaggerated. It's meant to be sort of poppy and interesting and, well, it's and the structuralism fake. you know even if you take someone like wes anderson too it's like every piece he's meticulous with his yep. dialogue it's everything that's on that script you read the way he wants it to be read and that's been and you know they've had many people talk about wes anderson's directorial style and his writing style and and some actors have really struggled with that on yep. the rails thing i know that was a big problem with gene hackman in royal tenenbaums and that's why he never worked with hackman after that because he really struggled with that. Because you could say he was a hack. Yeah, whereas someone like Bill Murray, <laughs> who we've seen in about six or seven different uh, uh, pieces, it's it's way more um, prominent. So mm. um, I think it's really interesting with this this film, out of all of them from a script point of view, you know, we were talking about you know things like Last Flag Flying and, and Boyhood and, and stuff. They definitely, ha- and everybody wants something dazing and confused, they have sort of this conversational element to them, but they are a little bit more structured and directed. Yeah. And well, whereas it, this one is chaotic, but it's chaotic for a great reason. It's chaotic for an authenticity's sake. Yeah. Well, I watched something like School of Rock, and that that feels jarring because even as much as I love School of Rock, it feels in terms of performance, it feels more like a traditional film. Like it's mm. it's actors delivering lines, and not to say that it's not inauthentic, but it it 
it follows that that structure that you expect more out of a play. Yeah. Where, you know, there's less overlapping dialogue. You know, it's a little bit more digestible to a regular audience. And, and I love School of Rock because of just the portrayal of the kids and how their characters, and it's just such a wholesome film. But the it's not an orphan... There's not the authenticity in that film of, oh, this guy sneaks into his school and teaches them rock music. Like, that's a, that's a fun premise. You almost have to have mm. and play with it in a fun way. But this is like, no, 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 this is based on a real event in Linklater's life that he wanted to recreate. And to sell the relationship, you need to buy that they have chemistry. And the chemistry comes through the supernaturalistic overlapping 100%. dialogue. I mean, I, you take something like Boyhood too. It's like he, there are certain uh, plot points that the boy needs to achieve in order to undergo the clearly developmental um, uh, character arc that that boy undergoes right. in his, you know, his child to man. Uh, you know, like um, boy to man, and whereas this, yeah, it is played for authenticity. I mean, this film is astronomically more boring. If it had <laughs> seriously, yeah, it, it would yeah. be the most plain Jane film. If they just went with the most regimented script, you yeah, know, guy meets girl on train, guy and girl spend a night in Vienna and fall in love with each other, like it. You know, it's a film that you could easily... That plot, you could easily take up, pit down, put down in a 1940s romantic film. And we probably would be incredibly more bored by that part. I mean, even even if we take something like, um, to some extent, Midnight in Paris, it doesn't do it nearly right. as well. And it's way more regimented, you know, and that's Alan's writing style. Um, and I like that film, but the, yep. what that film has going for it is not the romantic story. It's the idea of meeting all of these historical figures and getting a different perspective. You know, it has that night of the museum yeah. quality. There. Fitzgerald, wow. Yeah, that <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> no, because uh, I like the movie too, but you're right. I think the romanticism from here comes from, you know, and, and it's funny because I was 23 when I first saw this film, which wasn't that long ago, but I was, you know, I was 23. You were 23 now watching this for the first time. We're the same age as the characters. So that's the, so cool. So See, that adds that adds yeah. another level of because the way he acts mm. at times, you know, twenty three is not old by any stretch of the means. No, he's not a teenager, but he he almost has like the uh, the 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 klutziness of a teenager. I mean, she even says he's clumsy. She makes that joke that he's yeah. a clumsy American, but the the youth and and it, it's shocking as well because you know nowadays we look at that and we're like wow Ethan Hawke looks so young Julie Delphi looks so young and it's like well that's the point you know and it, it's hard to gauge that now yeah watching this film as a singular beat but like their age and the way they look whether they look young or they look a little older becomes a huge part of this trilogy and I think the conversations that they have at age twenty three it's so um tangential in a lot of ways yeah. um or or um non non chronological in ways like it's funny because i wrote down a list of the things they actually talk about and i don't think the conversation is as important as just the fact that they have conversations about art and music and like th- being afraid of That's, death i think you know? it and it's interesting because what i like about um the conversation flow and progression is is as the night goes on, they start to they start to get to those deeper things. It's a natural progression. I mean, the yeah. opening conversations, Ethan Hawke's doing the icebreaker where it's like, oh, what's the 
craziest sexual thing you've ever done yeah. you know he like very which is very much what a 23 year old guy who doesn't who's trying to break the ice and build a quick rapport with someone yeah would ask it's a very natural thing it's like it's the i love that when um you know celine makes fun of jesse for you know like making fun of romantic big romantic gestures then five minutes ago he's trying to like woo her at the top yeah, of the ferris yeah, exactly. and and the, the comfortability that they have to make fun of each other like that it works so well because she even does the same thing in the tram when she's like all right well i'm gonna ask you a question and he gives it have you ever been in love one word answer and she's like well come on i just delved into it you know yeah i would have lied about it but i still would have given you more like they call each other out in those things yeah. and it's that comfortability that they have and he opens other. up on it and, and you very yeah. much clearly like, I mean, we got to go through this film bit by bit now because like, yeah. we've talked a little bit about Linklater's <laughs> style. Yeah. Um, we both love this film. I adore this film. This film to me is... These are the kinds of films that if I'm making a feature-length film, this is the kind of stuff. I mean, right. year after year, we've done this show. I mean, once was out Golden Chalk Topwood. That is just a story of two a guy and a girl... I clearly Very have a type for films. Yep. <laughs> they woo me the same way, you know. Blue not, Jay not, as well. I was going to say not two, two, two or three weeks later, we're doing Blue Jay right yeah. on, the, on the show, and same sort of pure charm between Duplass. And, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head um, who the female lead in Blue Jay was. Oh, Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. Of course, yeah. Sarah Paulson. <laughs> looked at this film literally during the week. Apparently, um, people don't like her. What, in that film? No, like, just in general. People don't like what? Sarah Pulse. I'm like, why? why? I don't know. Is that, like, a controversial thing? I don't think... I, I don't know. I just read the... Oh, I'm so sick of seeing her. It's like, why? Okay. People mm. are weird, man. People are weird. Fantastic. And it's like, this film is exactly... I, as soon as we were on the train, I was like, yep, this is it. This is this is my film. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm a huge Ethan Hawke fan. Like, yeah. out the... He's probably my top five for actors. So... Um, and seeing younger him is, is interesting because it's like, I think I've probably grown to like, like grown liking him as his, you know, his current age is more much, you know, older roles in, in, in boyhood and, and first reformed and such like that. So it's interesting to go back to, oh yeah, these are young 23 year old men in this. So it's very interesting. <laughs> well, that's uh, the thing. It's, it's almost, it's not shocking because, you know, we talked about Dead Poet Society not that long ago. It wasn't our main show uh wasn't the main film no film of the week it we're wasn't talking that, about peter weir we were we were so that would have been um gallipoli yes yeah so we we're talking about um deadpool society of course even hawk is very young in that i think that actually predates this film yes it does yes. um i think so well, yeah about five or six years right yeah um so it's, it's like into even hawk had been around you know at this point but like now you're right now we, we see him as a very sophisticated guy he's in what first reformed is that yes we're called yeah and um Obviously, he was a big part of Boyhood, and that you you just know the relationship he has with Linklater in that um, in this film has led to. Oh, that. I think it's eleven collaborations now with. Oh, Link. that's crazy! So that's that's pretty insane. When you've only made twenty something films, and half of them have the same actor in them. Yeah, exactly. That's, and most of them he has like writing credits too. So it's he works obviously very closely with him. Yeah. And that's, I love when you have directors that have these direct, you know, we've talked to a couple of directors corners, these directors that have these continual relationships. Now we just talked about Anderson earlier in the show with people like Bill Murray. We um, talked about Killing Murphy and Nolan. Nolan. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it is really interesting, um, to see that just how much there's that trust there. But, um, yeah, I, I think from their, their first interaction that, 
I always find it so interesting that they really take their time. Obviously, there's a couple fighting in the front of the train, which leads to Celine moving uh, to be in the you know adjacent seat to where, yeah, where Jesse is. is. And but it's really interesting. They really take the time to start talking to one another. There's multiple it's glances, glances and back and forth, and, yeah. and I love that it just doesn't jump straight into it because it's the subtlety um, uh, where he mixes like he somehow manages to i think i i probably put this more aptly with you when i was watching the film and i was okay. sending you messages but i'm gonna have to quickly were you sending me messages while watching it i think it was just after i finished watching oh, okay it. that makes more sense i wasn't um, i wasn't in the live messages so we've had we've had a lot of emotional texting the last couple of <laughs> couple of days <laughs> you have to use uh, the, the key search function but yeah i mean the thing that i took away as well um, first off, I don't want to say anything, but like, just the the action at the very beginning of the film of like an, an angry older couple arguing that almost leads Celine into this fate of like walking towards Jesse. Like, I don't want to comment on it too much, but like, little moments like that that come in a full circular play throughout the trilogy is just it's brilliant. It's why I, I just refuse to believe this film was made in in a in a uh, what a vessel or a, I don't know. Yeah. a singular so I have found void. it okay so, so I mean, what was the message um, so we're touching on the whole 23 thing a little bit earlier so I wrote this yep. a, I wrote to you and there's a beauty about being 23 and watching Sunrise for the first time mm-hmm. uh, literally being their age is cool and you went legit I was 23 as well when I first saw it such a special film can't wait to watch it again I went it's strange yep. how human Link later constructs his characters they're worldly and grounded yet transcendently universal in meaning look at me <laughs> um and i think that that's dropping the, the bombs I, I think it comes back to this interaction and multiple uh beautiful subtle um reactions where they they just show don't tell with these characters yep. there's uh, one moment in the back of the tram when he like first off he's got his uh, another example of him u- utilizing the space he's got his arms like completely spread out in the back of the tram but then he goes to like fix up her hair and just like that constant like goes for it doesn't go for it go for it like the little and visual awkward, gestures. Yeah, and it's awkward enough that she ends up just fixing it herself. Yeah, um, yeah. Doesn't call attention to him. Yeah, it's yeah. not like she didn't want him to do that. It's more just he was so clumsy about his decision. <laughs> it's such a great little she like, elects to take, shrug away. You know, out of the two of them, they, they both at times uh, display... Incrence, uh, incre- uh, and this is this is the epitome of being twenty three, and we yeah. can attest to this because we're yeah. this right now. <laughs> um, th- there's the perfect balance of maturity and immaturity at twenty three, yeah. and I say this with they clearly have rounded knowledge and understanding. You know, Celine's currently in school; um, she's pretty travelled at this point. You know, um, both of them are mature enough to have these deep philosophical conversations and yep. actually have some form of, you know, academic weighting and motivation behind their incentives and ideologies where they can justify what they're thinking, but then they'll still act out immaturely at times or brashly. Right. And they both at some point during the evening demonstrate both that grounded worldly understanding yet at the same time, um, at times, you know, Jesse comes off like, a bit of a like a bit of a tool sometimes because he'll say yeah. stuff and you'll be like, "Oh well, that was a bit, that was a bit," and like, and but the, then you think mm. back and you go, 
I 100% have done that at some point. Right. <laughs> like... Well, the, the, <laughs> the, the main takeaway I take from that is um, specifically when he's, like, making fun of the uh, sort of local street artists and that, like the palm reader and the poem writer and stuff like The comments that he's making about them, sort of that nihilistic approach. So, well, you know, it's, she's the same thing as make you feel better to give her money, but then Celine you know, who, who's sort of taking it in the other direction of, oh, well, you know, this is all beautiful and this is people doing their thing mm. and, like, why can't we appreciate that? That little juxtaposition there is sort of the first hint at a disagreement. And Yeah, well, and, and then their ability to call it out. Did we just have our first fight? Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. I feel like this film is trying to... It's, it's somehow, and it manages to convince you that these two, by the end of the film, by the end of its 90 minutes, by the end of one night together... It doesn't feel like they've spent one night together because the amount of talking and conversation they have with each other is is something that relationships that can have a year or so like yep. they don't feel like they're long into a relationship but they definitely feel their relationship has the maturity of something that's lasted a lot longer enough yeah. to fall in love with each other and actually justify why they feel like they've fallen in love with each other exactly well that's the thing is like you know it's it's a talkathon but. It, it through the 90 or so minutes that we're spending with the characters like yeah you buy the relationship because we're seeing it and it's not just through dialogue it's through the gestures and, mm. and i think the time spent with them and you're going to feel this with the other films as well when you actually start breaking down how much time they've spent together even across the three films it's shocking how fulfilled not fulfilled but like their relationship feels more filled in than than the time would suggest like if you're right it feels like it, it's been longer than a day yeah well it feels like they're like when they love each other yeah. they legitimately have that now it's not a uh a mature love it's an unrec- it's a love that very much two young people that have been dating each other for four or five months might feel about one another they yeah. feel like they have an, a, a connection that will transcend time by the end of the film because when they you know leave each other's company they go they completely go back on things much yeah. like young well, they can't people's be naivete. mature adults about it yes they, they're, they're <laughs> young naivete about that and and that's the beauty of that tw- being 23 because you have the awareness that you probably think this is not going to work. And of course, Jesse's past relationship that has failed, that has led to him taking this train ride and being yep. in this position shows that he's clearly aware of, of the almost the impossibility that long distance relationship and yet completely goes back on it by the end of, of the film. Yeah. Because Just that sudden shift of like, no, I can't do this because, well, that's the naive belief that this one's going to be different. This is the different, um, situation and you as the audience believe right. it is the yeah. the exception to the rule and that's fascinating that you get completely we get completely sold on a, a relationship that starts and ends in the same film yeah it's funny because like I as much as yeah I was you know I'm 23 when I watched this film that, that kind of aspect of it but I, I even regardless of that, I still feel like I wish I saw this a little bit younger like at a different time in my life because I'm a bit of a jaded man at the moment. <laughs> you and me both, buddy. Yeah, yeah if anyway. Which is why I think this film is so important for us to watch. Well, that's it, you know, and, and I think we were joking, we were watching footage. Um, it, it, I feel like it's needed to be clarified because we're being way too vague. Basically, that one of our favourite bands or our favourite band, period, has announced they're disbanding later in the year. So we've both been very sort of emotional about it. And I was showing you footage from a concert that I went to years ago with, as you dubbed, My Celine. 
you know, and it, it's sort of true because it's something I can relate to, but I'm almost, I'm almost a little too removed from it now to have that emotional weight. I can still watch this and buy their love and, and understand what it feels like that. I don't even want to call it lust. There's a sense of lust in there, but like when they're hugging and I, lo- I this is what I love. I love that it focuses on Celine's side of the hug. And this is something I've noticed I remember years and years ago, the and I'm going to spoil the ending of Harry Potter. God forbid if you've never seen all the Harry Potters. But the scene when Ron and Hermione kiss in the last film. I remember someone pointing out like, oh, of course, like her face is covered. You see his face because of the angle that they're shooting the kiss from, but you don't see her face. And ever since then, I've, I've always been conscious about, okay, well, how much in this mutual relationship bond, and this is across all films, not just this one, I'm always wondering, like, how much did they actually pay attention to the feminine side of that relationship? And I love in this film the amount of times we actually go behind Jesse's back and look at Celine. She holds on, like, tightly onto his back. And it's not just, like, a friend hug. She's, like, gripping onto him. And I love that focus, that especially at the end when she's about to get on the train uh, at the end of the film. I love that yeah. focus, and I love that, that that's where we sense that real love is again i keep saying it but it's through the gestures mm. I, don't know. I, I i feel like i'm repeating myself now <laughs> I, I but i think that that's it i mean it, when you you're hitting the nail on the head why this film is just it's just a masterpiece when mm. it comes to pure romance and stuff and it's like like i i think once is a masterpiece too but it's 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 a different masterpiece it's, right it it covers a very similar relation a complex relationship over a period of time but it has things like music incorporation. One of my favorite things about this film is it has non-diegetic music in its opening credits, and it doesn't resume the non-diegetic music until after Celine and Jesse depart each other. Yeah. The rest of the film is purely diegetic. Yeah. There is one when they when they're listening to the music, they do have a J. Is it a J or an L cut? It's a uh, it's a J cut. They have a J cut where the music leads into the next scene. So it turns non-diegetic, but it's still motivated. The characters mm. are listening to their music. And I love the idea of the music taking on that effect. Yeah. When they're walking, they go back into a tram and they're walking the streets looking at the college. Absolutely. Like the feeling of what it feels like to the, listen to that music When they're together. on the hotel boat bar right. and the, the trumpet player starts. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I just think it's, it's a film that completely and utterly envelops you and you get enveloped in this evening. And I mean, I think we all want to have an evening with a Jesse or a Celine um, yeah. where we have that feeling of, uh, you know, like pure bliss with someone else yeah. too. A, and, a euphoric and, escape in a lot of ways. And that's what it feels like because they abuse each other as they're, they're, they're there for each other in the sense that they're, you know, talking about their past pains and stuff. Celine touches on, you know, they both open up to each other by the end of the evening, you know, yep. the, something that, um, and then they both talk about their, you know, they bring jaded cynicism at times. Both characters yeah, are quite absolutely. jaded at times. So, you know, you say, you know, you come to this film and you'd like to have watched it a couple of years ago. It's like, I think it's the best time to watch it now because, mm. yeah, look, we're jaded individuals right now, sure. But the the fact that they were able to have moments where they both were just dealing in absolutes with their opinions. Like, yeah. there were times where Celine would be quite, um, she would talk about how, um, you know, she would go on her uh, her more feminist ideology um, right. perspectives and... And Jesse would often retort with kind of an in, sometimes a quite insensitive 
uh, answer where he always talks about like you know he always brings it back to the sexualization of women yeah and they'll have their little back and uh, headbutts on that one and and she'll you know she then caves at latter stages in the night where she goes look i want to always appear like i'm this this independent woman that doesn't need a man and stuff but is always constantly looking always wanted to have a guy that you know she gets that affirmation from yeah. so it's that you know and we all have those mindsets where we want to be strong and independent but kind of like having that person that we can confide in yeah and i i find it's just the the power of each of the conversations is all subtle contributions to why their love is so balanced and not irrational to believe as a viewer yeah because they cover such an array of stuff and they in a way that's it's baffling how many of those conversations at one point or another we've had with a partner or someone we've gone on a date with um or felt like we had that connection with um and I think that level of relatability is very rarely matched in film. Yeah, and I and I want I want to predict that this was actually Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi's contribution to the script was the specificity of their discussions because I was reading it when we were looking up our trivia facts and whatnot. Of I remember reading somewhere that originally they they were meant to be more vague as characters, and the city that they roamed around wasn't Vienna, but like a vague unnamed city. So I'm guessing that when they came on board, they are the ones who I don't. They don't think they necessarily said we're doing it. No, we're going to Vienna and doing this. But they brought the specificity. No, let's be more specific about you know Jesse's past, Celine's past, their fears, their desires, their emotions. Like let's be more specific about that. Um, and you're you're right. I think it works because it's relatable. Yeah. Yeah. But yet has that, like I said, that universal transcendence that somehow. Yeah, look, I haven't had, I don't have Jesse's specific backstory, but right. there are so much in his character values I can relate to as a person. His, his, you know, his greatest strengths and some of his biggest flaws are stuff that I share and have. Right. Um, and that's okay because it's the same. I'm sure, um, you know, female viewers will have relatability with Celine's character too, and even there's even cross pollination over the genders. Like I wouldn't course, even say yeah. it's even. It's not even um, monogender in that sense. I think there are stuff that even you know male viewers can relate to Celine and understand, you know, sort of her, her rhetoric and, and perspective. I think um, her story when she talks about dating this guy that was so even in hindsight was so below beneath her, but yeah. somehow managed to be painted out like she's the crazy bad guy with the therapist <laughs> having a go at her. And yeah, yeah. it's like, you don't think, Oh, well, Celine's a crazy person. You go, well, stuff that guy. What a tool. Like, <laughs> and the therapist, you get that perspective. There's a, yeah. yeah. There's that level of, of, you know, like she's just like, they're both likable and jaded at, different points in the night and that's fan that's fantastically rounded yeah so layered well that's oh. it. And, and i and i go back to that conversation they have this is actually one of my favorite scenes is when they're in the little that diner booth and they're doing their mm. pretend phone calls um and what i love about that it's almost like one of the more vulnerable parts of where they're able to talk about each other where she's like oh well you know i actually kind of fell in love with him at this point in the night or is this point obviously in their fake conversations to each other's friends because they're th they're playing on it because they're both insecure about yeah. what they're thinking but then they also play off the joke of each other's and i think this is a really important part is the american versus the french aspect of it and it's even in the log line that we read earlier they make a point of pointing out that 
of like that she's like oh what's up dude like just like those little jabs at each other yeah. was so good and when you have that experience like that's the other thing it's like i mean i like one of my past partners was someone from a different country right. and um so there is that relatability too there the, the, like that layer of contextual thing and the best part about you know we talked about this off the show with just art in general is is the best part about films and especially the beauty of a lot of Linklater films is you can bring a lot of yourself to his films particularly these films yeah you know these and the boyhoods and stuff um and you can bring that stuff and kind of relate to that stuff sometimes it's a little bit more extreme and way less grounded like than it is in this film where it's it it does feel like we are just watching two people fall in love with each other yeah um like this story this story of of celine and, and jesse could happen anywhere in the world and i mean it comes back to the the earliest script versions where the city was ambiguous yeah, yeah you know the city wasn't a character and i i agree that making it a character unto itself but vienna is still transcendent i mean we talk uh, on an earlier episode of the podcast we did the third man and you know if anything third man points out how diverse culturally vienna is because of things like world war Two, how yeah. it's split into four districts and, and it's the exact same uh, ferris wheel from the yes. third man yeah I'm, I love that you mentioned the third man. That's awesome. Uh, um, and it, it is. It's it, and because yeah. Vienna is is an amalgamation of different European cultures, so it's a great crossroads and also a great way of standardizing it. So it's mm. the perfect meet of ambiguous city and Vienna because Vienna is one of the most culturally diverse cities in its architecture, its art, and its expression because yeah. of how many different. Um, uh, nations have have piled in on that city. Well, so. it, it works as well because th- there's still a broadness to it, and the fact that it's a playground for these two characters to play in. Mm. And like, I relate to that personally with like the people I've dated, where we've gone to Frio, and it's like I've lived near Frio my entire life. But there's still something fun about going to Frio with that specific person, and like going through the bookshop and like making jokes and all those kinds of things. But then the specificity of it being Vienna. And specifically a place of culture and art because there's so much commentary on art and like you know the palm readers it's like it's, i'm not saying that you can't have a palm reader in any other part of the world but you meet those characters in vienna yeah, yeah. that's where you meet them and it just I, makes a lot of sense a hundred percent i and i think the, i love that you brought up Fremantle because it's like frio is obviously would probably be the closest thing that we can associate here in western australia to that sort of mindset and it's kind of the exact same thing it's a character unto itself yes but it's a, you know, Vienna's beauty is the fact that it, it some of the moments that best build um, uh, Jesse and Celine's relationship are in places that aren't landmarks. They're not. Yeah. Um, they're in just a restaurant in Vienna where or they do a the random, focal. Or an alleyway. Or, or a yeah. random record store. Yeah. Um, they don't, it's not like a midnight in Paris or any, most Woody Allen films, which are often location paraphernalia yeah. where characters, <laughs> not that that's a bad thing, but that's what Woody that Allen does. He loves places yeah. and he loves New York and he loves showcasing New York things and often things set in New York love talking about the fact that they're in New York and Paris is the same. It's the romances, like romanticization of the location it's like yeah, it's location paraphernalia yeah. whereas here vienna is it's not a it's about it is it's a playground for the characters to play and yes there are moments where we compliment on the things that are specific to vienna right they when they go to the graveyard and yeah. celine talks about very specific um deaths of yeah. these ca- people lost in an ocean and often didn't have any form of identification or very limited forms of identification yeah. left on them and 
that's and obviously the, the the ferris wheel but a lot of those scenes are actually relatively early on um that's so, true and it's mostly in daylight which i think is quite interesting yeah because the, by the night time it's just relying on like the brimming life of the city and the characters they're not so much the landmarks and the fact that like yeah it's a that's the ferris wheel we can point to from the third uh the third man or you know whatever you want to call it but it's like it's not necessary for you to know that that to get a kick out of it like, you can get a kick out yeah. of it but i feel like when you watch something like midnight in paris it almost feels like you need to know those locations more specifically. Mm. You need to know more about the location. And it's a little isolating because it's beside the point. The point is the relationship, the yeah. playground. Yeah, 100%. That's that's exactly it. Um, yeah. yeah. You got anything else you'd like to add? <laughs> um, let's take a look. It's funny because there's certain things that I want to talk about that would almost be better talked about in the follow-up films. So I might even leave those. The other thing I'll mention is, I guess mostly in regards to their meta dialogue, where I love the, at the beginning when Jesse's talking about his idea for a 24-7, 365-day TV show, which is such like a Linklater concept. (laughs) That idea of like, of exploring time and, and, and that. But even just, he has the line at the start of like, think of this as time travel. That's almost like the opening line before you have like the montage, like the six-minute music video of all three films. And again, another example of I can't believe this was made self-isolated. It's just ridiculous. But it's a great see, pitch, though. Yeah, it's a it, that pitch that Jesse gives is is a great pitch. I uh, I would I would go with him too, and I'm straight. Yeah. Let's leave on that note. <laughs> <laughs> Zeke, what is your highlight scene for Jeez Before Sunrise? Um. There is a really nice scene when, um, God, I mean, I pretty much could say the 90 minute film is my highlight scene. (laughs) It's just a master. It's a master of duet cinema, isn't it? Really? Mm. Like you, you could not meet a better duo to carry this film. Um, probably I look, I'm going to go with something that's a, I really like, um, the scene I got two that spring to mind. I okay. really like the scene with the poet. Oh yeah, um, yep. I like his he's, poem. He's it's a good great po- it's a good poem. Character. <laughs> um, and sort of the insert, but probably my highlight scene. It's a really subtle, small one. It's okay. um, just after they spent the night in the park together, and they move past a guy. I believe he's playing some form of piano, but I'm not 100 percent sure what type of piano. Yeah, it. I remember the it's scene a, you're talking about. Though. They look look through the window. And they look through the window and they have a little dance and an embrace. And there's the, the the sense of impending doom coming because morning has come. Yeah. And well, the, a weird... the line they say right before they hear the music is like, oh, we're in real time now. Yeah. yeah. And I love that scene because that's 100% it. It's, it comes back to, I think that that is a deliberate choice that they avoid using like Vienna landmarks in nighttime. Like it becomes just a collection of events and, and mm. them being completely lost to the night. And even how and, the city is just like dead. During, yeah. Like now that sunrise has come, there's barely anyone in sight to even yeah. see, which is interesting. It, it's a really nice scene. It's a nice reality. I mean, that and probably the phone call scene is just fantastic. Yeah, it's a great scene. Mm. It's interesting because like I really can't pick a scene. It's a hard one. It is. But there was one line that really did speak to me. And I thought it was interesting. Not, not that like, 
it really awakened anything in me, but it was something that I couldn't quite put in the words that Jesse was able to put into words. So it's a scene when they are playing the, the pinball machine, sort of weaving in and out together, and they're talking about Jesse's breakup. The, the, the sort of quasi-breakup that he's just gone through on this trip. Yeah. And he talks about the worst part being, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something on the lines of how when you think about the time you broke up with someone and how little you thought of them, and then now you're thinking this is how little they're thinking of you, that line is like, I, I did not know how to put that feeling into words until Jesse did in that scene. Yeah. And it's... Yeah, that one pretty hit. Hard that one hit pretty hard. <laughs> it's been a yeah. It was a. It was a bit of a moment. And it, it's a thousand percent true. And it's funny because when I think about my past relationships, so I've been in four relationships, two dumpies, two dumpers, if you will. Yeah. Now my first one, I was a dumpy. I got dumped, and that was a really hard one. And then the second one, I dumped them. And the thing that was so tricky, it was almost like in reverse of that quote that Jesse has, is. I knew that as I was about to break up with this person. And it's still one of the hardest things I've ever done was that breaking up that relationship because I knew what I was about to do to them. And I knew that deep down I didn't care enough about Like I felt terrible for doing it, but I knew like really deep down, I'm just happy to get out of this thing. Yeah. And that's exactly what they talk about in that scene. That's exactly what that scene's about. Yeah. Man. No, it's, it's, I, mean, I think I think it's really important. So you know, obviously we've we've opened up quite a little bit about our past Ourselves. relationships, or, yeah. And I think that's really important because it's important to the discussion of this film because what makes this film honestly just a masterpiece for romance films, um, and in, in relationship films more importantly is the fact that you can bring your context to yes. it. And your context complements the film and it complements your life in that way because, uh, yeah, you bring that stuff. And the, those lines from Jesse, and there's quite a few of those lines in between Jesse and Celine, they both have lines where you go, oh, yeah, I've experienced that. I, I get that. Mm. And it's fascinating because this film's 1995. So this film is now 26 years old. Yeah. And Ooh. yet we're still... So it's older than you and I, Yeah, this film. Um, sorry, um, was Julie Delphi and Ethan Hawke. Um, <laughs> but the fact that we so can gain, it. You know, we're 23 watching this film 26 years later yep. and we're still getting that, that, that gravitas and that weight. Yeah. And I can tell you this We've right now. We've had those experiences, yeah. You know, when we're the age of the characters and, uh, you know, when we're 32 and when we're 41, oh, God. Um, we'll probably watch <laughs> those two respected films and have that level of relatability. But then there'll be people that 23 watching that film when we're 41 and still getting that level of relatability to yeah. the script because the characters are universal and transcendent in time because of like scenes like that and lines like that because... Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, I'm zero and yeah. four in relationships. I've been dubbed every <laughs> single time, and I'm very sure that oh, that man. consensus is right. And yeah, it hits yeah. that line because you're like, that's a hundred percent exactly the situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you know you know relationships I've been in with. Like, it's just a case of I need to get out of this. Yeah. Like you you know it from that standpoint. It's like I still feel bad because of that line. The line sums it up perfectly. Yeah. And what I'm curious about. So I was talking with Stephen last night. I sent him a photo of like, oh, I'm watching this for the second time. And we talked about that 
well, I said, I think this is still my favorite of the trilogy. And like I said, I think they're all impeccably important to each other. And there's very specific reasons I find this my favorite. But Stephen was the first one to say, it's because of your age. Or it's probably because of your age. And watching this the second time, this time with my mum, introducing her into this franchise, I'm wondering if it's going to have the reverse effect. Where she relates to these characters closer to the end of the series. As opposed to me feeling like I'm kind of losing the relatability with each film. And not by that much, mm. but... Well, well, you're just going to have to revisit when you're 32 well, and 41. That's it. That is exactly it. And I'm excited for that. And there that. may be 50. No. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Do you really think there won't be one next year? No. They've they've come... It was actually very recently they've come in, so like, yeah, this is not going to happen, which is very sad. But I again, I want this trilogy to... It's almost like it's too perfect, you know? Yeah. Can't touch it. They could, but they shouldn't. So I'm glad they're not going to touch it. Cool. Yeah. Well. Richard Linklater. Richard Linklater. <laughs> GG, sir. He just started earlier this year. He's doing a 20-year-long film that he's starting this year. Wow. Yeah. With none other than Beanie Fieldstein and Ben Platt. Really? Yeah. That can be interesting. 20 years? Wait, who, who's, what's Ben Platt? I don't I've know. heard that name before. I have heard that name. <laughs> let, me, let me look it up real quick. Beanie Fieldstein, of course, we love her from... Booksmart. Booksmart. She's in this new thing about the, the, the presidential scandal from... God, was it the 80s? I'm excited. It's like a mini-series. I'm excited for that. Ben Platt's in the Pitch Perfect films. Look at his face. He's, he's doing all right for so I, I can't say I've actually seen him before. Yeah. No, that's fair. Have, have you not watched before. Pitch Perfect? Oh, yeah, I have, but... Right. I mean, yeah, I don't really recognize... It's been a while. It's been a little while, but yeah. Yeah, it's, um, unfortunately, yeah, they're only out on Amazon Prime to rent before sunrise and... and oh, it's on YouTube, I think, as well. And yeah, so it's, you can only rent it right, right now, but it's currently out in wide release. I got a DVD off eBay. Very nice. Double pack. There so I, I haven't got Midnight yet. Or you can spend all the money in the world and get the <laughs> criteria. I want that. That can we just before we move into like what we you know what's new to streaming? Yeah. Can we just talk about that Criterion box collection? It's it's, just, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's uh, you've got one. I do, and it works. And it yeah it works on Region B players. Is that Crazy. ours? Are we Region B? Yes. Okay, so it would so it works on like a normal Australian yeah, yeah. where it plays. Yeah. Like we played it in the main living room and it worked Okay, then I'm going that. to have to ask. <laughs> your mum got that for you, correct, for your birthday? Yes, yes, so she I'll did. So I have to ask her where she got it because I want that one because I know Stephen's well, one. Stephen's one is region A. So that's what I wanted to check. Yeah. So I have to, I have to ask, follow that one up this is fascinating. on a quick side. But it's great. It's like water. It's like a water color. Yeah, I like the, the mixture of like the orange on it. Which is cool. And then I love just looking at the individual covers for the films because it's it's their faces. Have you looked at any of the... Behind, is there like behind scenes stuff? and On on each disc, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff. And they have like a little essay book in there as well. That's a great read, but you have to wait till you've seen all three okay. to read it. But cool. it's a great read. Cool. Um, yeah, it's excellent. Get the Criterion if you can, if you can afford it. <laughs> yes. It might be my first ever Criterion investment. Ooh, I love that. So. I love that. No worries. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? It's a bit of a light week. There's really nothing coming to streaming, anything of note, anything in film related. There are shows. Um, the 2005 film An American Haunting comes to Paramount Plus. Coming to Netflix is The Starling, which is a Melissa McCarthy new film. Sees a character suffer a loss as a combative starling takes nest in her quiet home. 
and as she tries to expel the feisty bird, she rediscovers her will to live and capacity to love. Sounds really corny. <laughs> if you're into that, you're into that. Um, and if you're also into Star Wars Visions, which is like sort of the, I think a, a collection of Japanese animated studios coming to make like an anime version of Star Wars, Ooh. or I think they're doing a bunch of like shorts that are going to be a pile of uh, a series. And I think they drop that whole series in the next week on Disney+. Plus. Uh, coming to cinemas, and it's funny, I had to rewrite this just a moment ago because they've actually delayed one of the films I was about to mention. So uh, even less films coming, but the one of them is Flashback, which sees Fred find a chance encounter with a man from his youth, which metaphorically and literally sends him on a journey through his past. I'm Juanita is a screen Australian documentary that follows the renegade country music singer. And finally, Diana's Wedding. And I'm going to read you the letterboxed logline. Keep in mind, this is meant to be a logline, Zeke. Okay. Remember that one I read to you, the World War II one? That was like inconceivable. We couldn't tell what the plot was. (laughs) We're we're trading similar territory here. Alrighty. Are you ready? Let's go. My My body is ready. It's July 29, 1981. In the majestic St. Paul's Cathedral in London, Lady Diana Spencer marries Prince Charles. The same day, another celebration takes place in the canteen of a Norwegian small-town factory. It's newlyweds Liv and Therese's wedding party. In the pram lies their newborn daughter, Diana, who, like her famous namesake, will be facing a lot of chaos in the years to come, thanks to her parents. The wedding and following years are less glamorous than the royal counterpart, but indisputably much more fun. For the eyes of Diana, we witness the rollercoaster of her parents' marriage. To her, they are the worst parents in the world, miles away from doing a decent job, consistently fighting, yet still in love by the time Diana is preparing for her own marriage 30 years later. The hell's the plot? <laughs> What's the point of the Princess Diana stuff? Like, so, apart it's from them be having one of, the same name. Yeah, it's got to be one of two things. Either that's literally just it, is like a logline stinger of, oh, the same day. Or the film actually follows both families like in, in adjacent to each other, which could be smart. What's it sitting on Letterbox? What's the Letterbox? Let's find it. It wasn't that bad. It was like a 3.4 or something. And I know it has different names in different um, countries, but it is Diana's Wedding on a... Uh, or Diane's Wedding. Did I misspell... Of course, because I wrote Diane, not Diana. The letterbox score, my apologies, is three point three. Look at that. Okay. So that's pretty spot on. But that, I mean, that logline there—that's atrocious. That is pretty bad. That is an atrocious logline, and all the names are capitalized. Like the full name is capitalized. Weird. Like capital D, capital I, capital A, capital N, capital A. It's <laughs> just so straight from the script. Yeah. <laughs> 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 It just got me the script. Yeah. Oh, that was funny. That got me. Oh, goodness me. Well, that's what's coming to cinema, Zeke. Are you prepared or what? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. I mean, oh, that was that log line was almost as long as it felt to watch Annette. So, um, <laughs> oh, uh, just cheap shot out of nowhere on a net. I love it. <laughs> um, we're not watching any of those next week on the show, but Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Pig. (laughs) 
A truffle hunter who lives alone in the Orgarian wilderness must return to his past in Portland in search of his beloved kidnapped pig. Orgarian. Is that what you just said? Uh, Oregon. Oregonian. Oregonian? Wow. Oregonian? Oregonian. It's Oregon is the, the place. Yeah, it's but... Oregon, but it says Oregarian. Uh, organ? Or- <laughs> organ? Organ. Mm. I don't know. I'd have to double check that one. I think we'll have I... to go to our American correspondent to yeah, try and exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. find out how to she'll pronounce be, that. She'll be listening, shaking her head. She will be, yeah, well. But it's, it's funny because when I first read this logline two weeks ago when it was coming to cinemas... I really I avoided that word because I wasn't quite sure. I was like, ah, surely I'll get it right this time. There you go. <laughs> so Nicholas Cage, Nikki Cage, Nikki Cage. Apparently, this is a great, great. I've great heard film. this is great, which yeah. is kind of crazy. Yeah, I love that. I am not the biggest fan of one Nicholas Cage, but um, yeah, this sounds interesting and kind of an interesting reenactment of the. Trouble Hunters documentary I talked about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, exa- it's a follow-up. It? Yeah. Follow <laughs> now, all right. Well, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Pig.